Rain chance at 40%. For tonight, a chance of showers and thunderstorms before 8 p.m. Then a chance of more showers between 8 p.m. and 2 a.m. Mostly cloudy, low 53. Monday, chance of showers, high near 71 degrees, mostly cloudy. PJ's Roofing, when it comes to your roof, they've got you covered. Visit pjsroofing.com. I'm Jim Tice. This is the Faith Debate, a theological roundtable gab fest, a free-for-all forum with faith community leaders wrestling over the truth. In less than one half hour, learn more about what really matters than what most others learn in a week. The Faith Debate is on the World Wide Web at WFMD.com, keyword faith. Are you ready for the clash of ideas? Are you ready for the sound of freedom? Let's get ready to rumble in this corner, weighing in with the Master of Divinity from Reformed Theological Seminary, the Faith Debate Master of Ceremonies, oh, yeah. <laughs> Troy Skinner. Heading down the home stretch now. This is the third in a th- three-part series of looking at end times views, the last days, the end of the world as we know it, eschatology. Pick your favorite phrase there. So week one, a couple of weeks ago, covering these topics, we, we broke it out into the three major views on these sorts of things from a biblical Christian point of view. And so two weeks ago, we tackled post-millennialism, and we began to uh, dangle our feet in dispensationalism. Then last week, we spent almost all of our time on fleshing out more fully what all the different aspects to dispensational view is. And then we had just enough of a tease to whet your appetite for millennialism, And the amill or millennial view is what we're tackling on this week's view. So if you want to take it all in, I mean, it's, it's concise in the sense that you're going to be able to listen to three podcasts in a row and in less than an hour and a half, you know, hour and probably it would take you maybe an hour and 20 minutes, something like that, to listen to all of the podcasts, uh, you would have a pretty good sense of what the different labels are, how the terms are defined, what the big views are when you hear people talking about this or you're reading books or seeing movies that are tackling these things, you might, these sorts of issues – uh, and, and incorporating these sorts of worldviews, you'll have a sense of where they're coming from and uh, what their angle on this sort of stuff is. And perhaps you hold to one of these views, but you don't exactly understand why or you don't fully even understand your own view. Maybe this will be helpful to you in that regard as well. So we're going to pick up where we left off last week. We were talking, just beginning to talk about ah millennialism. And so um, I'm not sure if I'm in mid-thought here. Hopefully I'm at the beginning of a sentence at least. <laughs> so this is the Faith Debate on 930 WFMD. Right. We as believers, we are already saved, but not yet in the way that we will experience our salvation. Right? You can make the argument that I was saved, I am saved, I'm being saved, I forever will be saved. Right? There's different ways to understand that. And all millennialism is trying to grapple with those time stamp uh, realities and ways of, of how God works. Um, I need to pull back my notes here, see if I'm leaving anything out. So it's already not yet. So there's good and evil mixed, right? Evil has already been defeated, but not yet fully. There's an absolute Christ on the cross says it is finished. It is over. It is done. There's no more for Jesus to do. He has won the victory. We have D-Day, right, this week, celebrating D-Day. You know, D-Day effectively was the, the, the Allied forces won D-Day. And in doing so, they won the European theater of the war. The European theater of World War II ended on D-Day. 
Everything D-Day till the end of the war was a mop-up operation. It was fait accompli. You're playing chess and you just maneuvered and now you know I'm three moves away from checkmating the king. The game's still being played. There's still three more moves, but game over. That's kind of the amillennial view on, on these sorts of things. Um, let's see. And when we talk about the mix of the good and the bad and the evil and it's already but not yet, that's true for the visible church. That's why we have so much strife and problems within the church. There are a lot, there is a church and there will be a final visible church that represents perfectly the invisible church. And by invisible, I mean the church that we are unsure who's really in the church, God sees. So the church that God sees at the end will be the church that all of us see because it will be the only church. But there's a lot of wheat and tares mixed in right now to use that parable there but we won't clarify what's the wheat and what's the tares until the harvest and then the separation comes and yet there is a church now right already but not yet in the way that it will be so recapping amillennialism holds that Jesus is presently right now reigning from heaven seated at the right hand which is a figurative way of saying seated in power with God the Father Jesus is with now and will remain forever with the church until the end of the world. By the end of the world, I mean the, the end of the world as we know it, until the remaking of the world with the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, the millennium began 2,000-ish years ago. Uh, Acts chapter 2, verses 16 through 21, by the way, would be uh, a proof text that might get used in this in this case, uh, if you're not off the top of your head familiar, that's where Peter uh, quotes from Joel chapter 2, uh, verses 28 to 32, talking about the coming of the kingdom to explain what's, what's happening to them in the first century as Peter was talking. Um, and our millennials believe that the church and its spread of the good news, that work is kingdom work. It is advancing the kingdom. It is advancing Christ's kingdom. God is using us here and now to win victories for his kingdom here and now. And there will be an ultimate victory that we all share in forevermore. So I mentioned there are some big heavyweight proponents in this camp as well. Uh, even if you've never heard of it before, I'm sure you've heard of some of these people. Augustine, you've probably heard of. There's a city in Florida named after him. We usually Americanize it and call it St. August, Augustine. Uh, Augustine. But it's Augustine is the is the way it probably historically had been pronounced most of the time. Anyway, Augustine, Herman Bobink, uh, uh, Gerhardus Voss, Louis Burkhoff, uh, Anthony Hokema. I don't know if these names mean anything to you, but in theological circles, these are huge names. Uh, Cornelius uh, Venema, uh, Kim Rilbarger, um, lots of folks uh, in in this camp. So those are the outlined notes of uh, post-millennialism, pre-millennialism, and all the dispensational uh, and historical arms of that, and amillennialism. I'm sure it's clear as mud, <laughs> but as I was talking through all that, maybe parts of it resonate. Oh, yeah, I think I believe in that, or I think I've heard my pastor teach on that. Okay, now I kind of know where he might be coming from. So if you go to a church and you hear a pastor and he's talking about the rapture, you know, there's going to be the secret rapture, and, and, and they're talking about the, the tribulation. Uh, that's a dispensational pastor. So you go to a church that emphasizes one of the variants of dispensationalism. 
Uh, if you go to a church and you seem to hear a pastor talk about the already not yet tension of the Bible pretty frequently or emphasizes the fact that Jesus is reigning right now, probably an amillennial view. If you've got somebody that's preaching uh, um, consistently and teaching consistently about the church triumphant, the church winning the day, you know, America is going to turn back its heart to God and is going to win the day. America is going to become a Christian quote-unquote Christian nation again and provide an example for the rest of the world and then Europe's going to have a revival and they're going to become part of Christendom again and the whole world is going to be predominantly Christian even the People's Republic of China and Russia and, and uh, Iran and all these really hard-to-reach places with the gospel. They will be evangelized. They will come to belief and it's going to be a great, glorious... We're going to have a Star Trek future where you won't need money. <laughs> and you're, oh, everybody's pursuing peace and working together. And uh, if that's the kind of mindset, then you go to a church that has a um, kind of more of a post-millennial view. I don't know if that's helpful. So I've talked a long time. I feel like I've talked fast, but I felt like I had a lot of ground to cover. We've this is the Faith Debate on 930 WFMD, News Radio 930 WFMD. The present-day nation-state of Israel has forever uh, considered Jerusalem to be their capital city. Yeah. But uh, for political reasons, uh, the Western democracies that are allies of Israel, uh, in deference to the sensitive nature of those who are not fans of Israel getting their land back for a nation, uh, have been reticent to accept that Jerusalem is the nation's capital. Uh, and for Almost my entire life, I think, I remember presidents promising that we were going to move our embassy to Jerusalem as a symbol that we're, oh, we're affirming yes. that Jerusalem is their capital. Yes. And Barack Obama promised it. George W. Bush promised yeah. it. Bill Clinton promised it. I think George H.W. Bush promised it. I'm almost positive uh, that Reagan promised it. My recollection of, of history and our president's gets quite a bit dimmer after that because I was much younger. But I'm pretty, I know that the last three presidents before our current president all promised it for sure. I'm positive about that. Uh, and Donald Trump promised it too. And when I say they promised it, when they were campaigning, they promised it. But then when they were president, they didn't actually do it. Donald Trump made it part of his perfunctory promises like everybody else, except for him, I guess it wasn't perfunctory because he actually did it. He moved the American embassy to Jerusalem with lots of problems, by the way, lots of political incoming on him. It was going to lead to all sorts of problems, and it was going to cause the outbreak of the Third World War, because the Middle Easterners weren't going to stand for it. Now, I will say, a lot of Christians who aren't dispensational were opposed to that view, that move, because the Palestinians, uh, you could argue, are oppressed by the Israel government. Mm -hmm. And a lot of Palestinians are Muslims, but a lot of Palestinians are Christians. See, so a lot of Christians in Palestine who are having a rough go of it because of decisions made by the Israel government. And so people in the church were saying, no, anything that's going to make Israel stronger and therefore make things tougher on our Christian brothers and sisters in Palestine is a bad idea. We shouldn't move the embassy. That was their argument. The dispensationalists were like, oh, yeah, we got to move the embassy because we want Jesus to come back and he can't come back until the embassy is, uh, is there. We recognize that Jerusalem is the capital, which will then create momentum to rebuild the temple, and then all of the, the events of the last days that the dispensationalists are expecting can play out. 
And so dispensationalists, by the way, are more prone to like read theology off of the headlines of our newspapers and the lead stories on the cable newscasts. They're, they're looking to understand Bible prophecy from what they see in the news. And that's a pretty distinctly uh, dispensational, premillennial kind of, kind of view. Um, and they're, whenever Jesus is going to come, and, and a dispensationalist said, we don't really know when Christ is going to come, but again, they're looking at it as part of his coming is the halfway coming where he raptures his church. That secret rapture could come at any moment, although it, it seems like it, it wouldn't come before certain things happen. So, yeah, so they'll get, my sense of it is an awful lot of dispensationalists, not all of them, but a lot of them in common, in common language among dispensationalists, a lot of them will give lip service to, yeah, Jesus could come right now, but not really, because this, 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 and this have, have to happen first. That's one of the reasons. I have a variety of reasons why I'm an amillennialist. One of them is the emphasis on Christ being king now. I believe that the Jesus we worship is Lord, Savior, and king now. But he can't be king if there's no kingdom. So the fact that amillennialism emphasizes the fact that the kingdom already exists now, that's real attractive to me. The other thing is, because the millennium has already kind of happened, there's just this recurring cycle throughout history of all of the, the signs of last time. When you talk about the, you know, the earthquakes and the famines and the wars and the rumors of wars, that's been true forever. <laughs> there's just cycles of it. Now, you could argue maybe that the cycles are ramping up a little bit. That's, I think that's possible, plausible, maybe probable. I'm not sure where I stand on that. I know a lot of millennials would say it's probable. Okay, whatever. Uh, but anywhere within those cycles, Christ could return, and I don't expect a partial return. Recurring. That's one of my problems with the dispensational pre-trib rapture idea. Is I don't, I'm not persuaded from what I read in the text that there's a two-fold coming of Christ at His second coming. I think that He comes unannounced. He comes in full glory and power, and it's a shock to the world, and it is unambiguous, and everybody knows. There's no secret about it. And so I, I tend towards a amillennial view for that. And the other thing I find attractive about amillennialism, Jesus, a post-millennial view, unless we think things are so good right now that Jesus can come back in a post-millennial, Jesus can't come back until things are great, right? Until we have an extended golden age era. So whatever is true about Jesus coming, he's not coming today. And the dispensational view, there's so many things that still have to play out. Uh, the, the sacrifices have to happen uh, at, the, at the rebuilt Jewish temple, for example. There is no rebuilt Jewish temple. So, you know, the, so again, dispensationalist, Jesus isn't fully coming. I mean, whatever's true about Jesus fully coming back, he ain't fully coming back today. The amillennial view leaves open the possibility that before I finish my next sentence, Jesus will come back. And I feel like that squares with the, the watchfulness that Christ puts on upon his people to expect because he's going to come like a thief in the night, which means he's not going to sneak in the back window. It means he comes unexpectedly. No one expects the thief to come at night. If they were expecting him, the thief wouldn't be able to steal anything. So those are some of the reasons. So anyway, yeah, moving the, uh, the embassy to Jerusalem was a big deal politically and it was a big deal in the American Christian church for the dispensationalists. If, if your pastor is post-mill, pre-mill, ah-mill, and you're one of the ones he's not, 
you could still worship at his church. And he would not, speaking as a pastor myself, I'm a millennial. But I know for a fact that I have pastored people who are dispensational. Okay, I think they're wrong. Over time, I'm going to probably have some influence on their thinking being challenged and maybe they're going to change. I'm not going to make it the forefront part of my mind and thinking. My, my, my goal as a pastor isn't to convert, convert someone to amillennialism. My goal as a pastor is to be useful to God in convicting the heart of both believers and unbelievers. And the conviction of the heart for unbelievers is a conviction unto repentance and salvation. And a conviction unto the heart of a believer is a conviction unto obedience and increased sanctification. So that's the goal of a pastor. But of course, I've got a view that is influenced heavily by an all-millennial framework. And so that's going to come out in my teaching and preaching. But we could, we could worship together. We could be part of the same church. Now, I will say it can be it's possible, uh, but difficult for people to serve in leadership at the same church together. Uh, they could serve in leadership on what are called parachurch organizations, parameeting with. So... Uh, operations that work alongside and with the church uh, to feed the poor, to take care of uh, battered women, to help people who struggle with addiction. We can work on those things together and be leadership on the same boards and, and, and work shoulder to shoulder. But being in leadership uh, on a board of elders, for example, in the same church responsible for teaching and shepherding the same group of people and having very different views of the end times it's not impossible, but it would be difficult. And so there are some churches that say it's too difficult to even want to dare go down that path. We are a dispensational church, and if you don't agree with that, you can't be an elder, you can't be a pastor within our church, within our denomination. Uh, or, I didn't mean to pick on dispensationalists, we're amillennial, and if you don't agree with that, you can't be a pastor or an elder here. Or may, they might even take it further. You can't teach a Sunday school class or a Bible study, or you know, you can't. You can be a you can be a participant, but you can't be a leader. You can't be somebody who's influenced in thinking because we don't want you to infect the waters and cause discord. Um, I'm fine with it. I, I, uh, I'm fine actually. To be honest, there's there's some division and divide on other issues like should should you and can you baptize an infant or do you have to baptize somebody who's old enough to make a credible profession of faith themselves there's a division in the bible in the body of christ over that issue i can coexist i've got a position on that but i think there are compelling arguments for scripture for both i think one is more compelling than the other but you know what i can serve alongside even in leadership with somebody who disagrees with me on that but if somebody believes that jesus did not actually live as a human being who literally existed in history and didn't actually die on the cross and didn't actually rise from the dead and didn't actually ascend back into heaven and didn't actually send the Holy Spirit into the hearts of believers and God didn't actually create everything that is and God doesn't actually have a plan that guarantees victory for those that are trusting in, in him and his plan and his provision. Um, if those things are disagreed about, now you're a Christian cult. <laughs> now it's not trying to, it's not the church in disunity, it's the church distinct from the non-church. Mm-hmm. If you deny the person and work and sufficiency of Christ, you are not a Christian. Mm-hmm. You can profess to be a Christian all you want. God, according to his Bible, according to his word recorded in the scriptures, will he does not look at you as a faithful, believing Christian. 
And so I need, we need to have his view on those matters. To me. Yeah, but some of the things I've shared, and we're going to wrap up because we're getting a little bit long here, but some of the things uh, of why I've tended toward and now would count myself among the amillennial view is because of positive reasons, right? This text seems to indicate mm -hmm. this sort of view, which yep. is represented by amillennialism. But also, i got to say, you know, some of my view is uh, influenced by negative reasons. You know, I, I can't get myself to a place where I can agree with the pre-tribulation dispensational view, which emphasizes the fact that Christians are going to be spared suffering. Yeah. We're promised suffering, and we're told to expect it. In fact, we're told, we're told that it's kind of a good thing. We, you know, uh, Peter, in the New Testament, he says that Christians have the privilege of sharing in the suffering of Christ. Mm -hmm. So why would God, uh, uh, in, from my point of view, why would God deprive his children yeah. of a privilege of sharing in Christ? And by sharing in Christ, I mean, we get to understand Christ better. Mm -hmm. You know, you go through hard time with somebody, you know that person better. You know, sometimes friendships are forged through really tough, tough times. Uh, some people who are enemies become really close friends because they shared a really hard time together. You go through a foxhole with somebody in a war, you might not have liked them in boot camp, but by the end of the war, you're giving your life for them, right? Yeah. So I, I don't think God would, would deny us that quote-unquote privilege. Yeah. Uh, I think it's important for us to try to remind ourselves to think of it that way. Yeah. Uh, and, I mean, Paul didn't experience suffering. Why didn't God rapture him? I just, I have a heart, so there's, it's... Yes. So anyways, there are a lot of reasons for why I believe, but again, the dispensationals have a lot of reasons too. Mm -hmm. um, so, and this is going to sound really pejorative to the other views. From my point of view, it feels like the amillennial view, or in some cases, certain aspects of the postmillennial view, uh, more naturally can be formulated reading out of the text. If all you're trying to do is read scripture and grapple only with scripture and try to understand the words within their own context for what they are, I think amillennialism and postmillennialism uh, are most easily constructed from the text. Yeah. I think the dispensational views, they can fit within the text, but I think they work best, and I would argue they almost work exclusively when you take your dispensational grid, your idea of these dispensationals, and you import them into or on top of and over the text and choose to come to the text with your dispensationalism, I think if you attempt to come to the text with a blank slate, I don't think you end up with dispensationalism, is my view. So now all the dispensationalists hate me, but that's my view. And that's where we're going to wrap up. So please don't hate me. I mean, if you hate me, that's fine. Whatever. I'm a big boy. I can take it. But I'd rather you not hate me. <laughs> so if you've missed, uh, this was the last part of a three-part series on the uh, end times eschatology. So two weeks ago, we tackled uh, primarily most of our time on postmillennialism. Last week, most of our time spent on dispensationalism. This week, uh, pretty much all of the time, almost all of our time uh, spent on amillennialism. So if you want to kind of get all three put together, you have to go back to the podcast. You can find those at WFMD.com. You can find the Audio Vault section of the website. You can go to the Faith Debate page, and links to all the podcasts are found there. You can go to our Facebook page. And, of course, you can go to my personal pages all the time, anytime you want to as well. Troy Skinner, I use 
use my I just use my name, no fancy handles or anything like that. You can find me on uh, I post podcasts and video casts and those sorts of things on Facebook. I do a lot of uh, I do that plus a whole bunch of additional posting on Gab, Parlor, and MeWe. I probably spend most of my time on Parlor and MeWe. Uh, for what it's worth. And you can find all sorts of stuff uh, that I'm involved with and, and links to different things and uh, the church that I, that, I, that I lead, that sort of thing, at a new website, householdoffaithinchrist.com. I know it's kind of a mouthful, but householdoffaithinchrist.com. Hope you think about it in those terms, hopefully it's easy to remember. Uh, and, of course, the radio station's website, wfmd.com, and keyword faith. And the drop-down menu for the Faith Debate takes you to the Faith Debate page. Thanks so much for listening. Next week, we're going to tackle the question, are there ghosts? What's the Bible say about ghosts? Are there ghosts? And if so, what are they? And if not, okay, why do people think there are? We're going to tackle that question next week, 167 and a half hours from just about right now. Thanks for listening. God bless. God bless.